1913, in Atlanta, Georgia, a man named Leo Frank was put on trial for the murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan. This episode takes a look at the complex case, the long reach of its impact, and its musical theater legacy. Hey everyone, Christine here to wish you a very happy International Podcast Day. That's right, if you are listening on the day this episode drops, that's September 30th, you are actually celebrating International Podcast Day. I admit I didn't realize this episode was going to drop on a happy day, or else I might have picked a more cheerful topic. This episode, which covers one of the most still controversial murder investigations in U.S. history, involves a great deal of talk about death, racism, anti-Semitism, and white supremacy, and may not be suitable for younger ears. That said, as always, if you would like a captioned version of this and all other episodes, you can find it both at footnotinghistory.com and youtube.com footnotinghistory. I first learned about Leo Frank and the murder of Mary Fagan when I was in high school, and a then-new musical called Parade came to Broadway. I was fascinated by the story, which caused me to research it myself. Fast forward to 2013 when Footnoting History launched, and I put the topic on my to-do list. Now, here we are another decade later. A parade revival just completed its Broadway run and reminded me that I'd long been neglecting the topic, which brings us to today. Leo Max Frank was born in April of 1884 in Texas to Rudolph and Ray Frank. However, when he was still very young, his family relocated to Brooklyn, New York, and that's where he grew up. He studied at the Pratt Institute, and in 1906, he graduated from Cornell University with a degree in mechanical engineering. He worked for a bit, then eventually relocated to Atlanta, Georgia. The move was sparked by two interconnected things, family and business. Leo's Uncle Moses was based in Georgia and was a major stockholder of the National Pencil Company in Atlanta, which did exactly what you think. It made pencils. So Leo became the National Pencil Company's superintendent. He would later describe his role as including things like comparing product quality to competitors, overseeing purchasing materials, and most importantly for our purposes, perhaps, prepping the company's payroll. In Atlanta, he integrated into the local Jewish community by joining the local chapter of the organization B'nai B'rith, and at one point served as its president. Also, in 1910, he got married to a woman named Lucille. Lucille's family was well-established in the area, with ties to the local reform synagogue called the Temple, and also a very successful disinfectant company. Then, in the early hours of April 27, 1913, a body was discovered in the basement of the National Pencil Company by the night watchman Newt Lee. The victim was Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old employee. Mary was the daughter of William and Fanny Fagan. She had been born in Alabama shortly after the death of her father and grew up with her mother and family, first in Marietta, Georgia, and then eventually in Atlanta. Although Mary's mother eventually remarried, when Mary was 10 years old, she began to work. However, she wasn't at the National Pencil Factory until 1912. At the time of Mary's murder, it was not uncommon, though it was controversial, for children as young as 10 to be employed in factories around Atlanta. In truth, the Atlanta Leo Frank and Mary Fagan lived in was going through a period of major change and growth. 
In the 20 years leading up to Mary's death, the population of Atlanta exploded, rising to about 150,000 people. The shift for many from rural life to having to seek employment in cities caused an identity struggle. Those who are in such dire economic need that they had to send their children to work in factories also struggled with guilt and worry. Plus, Atlanta had any number of issues like economic, racial, and religious tensions, which simmered and bubbled. While tragic in any location, in this particular atmosphere, Mary's murder was the real occurrence of the worst-case scenario imagined by all who sent their children, especially their young daughters, to work. The local outcry over the death of this young, white Christian girl was immediately enormous, and so was the desire for vengeance. The law and legal systems were put under immense pressure not only to find the murderer, but to do so quickly. The investigation, especially at the scene of the crime, was sloppy. So very sloppy. For example, investigators did find what became known as the murder notes near the body. Who wrote them and what they meant, they sound like an attempt to direct attention to a black employee as a murderer, was questioned. It's great that the investigators pulled these. What's less great is that people walked all over potential footprint locations and there were fingerprints visible on a door, yet ignored by investigators, despite fingerprint experts definitely existing at this time. Oversights like that are kind of a big deal. When Leo, as superintendent, was first informed by police of Mary's death, he was awkward and nervous. He was quickly identified as the last known person to see Mary, as she had gone to his office to collect her pay shortly before she was killed. However, Leo wasn't considered a prime suspect. Later, with his lawyers, his lead lawyer was named Luther Rosser. Leo gave a deposition that outlined what he'd done that day and who saw him both at work and at home. And he also showed the investigators his body to prove he had no marks or scratches on it from a struggle. Days later, during the coroner's inquest, he was questioned again. This time, he explained that during the hitherto unaccounted for time, when it was believed Mary was murdered, he'd been visited by one of the foremen named Lemmy Quinn. This was a pretty huge thing. So of course he was asked why he hadn't told anybody about it initially. Leo said it was because he'd forgotten the visit until Lemmy had reminded him. Although initially there were other suspects, they were eventually dismissed and eyes turned more to Leo Frank. Investigators knew that Mary had not left the pencil factory between collecting her pay and being murdered. They were also under constant pressure. Newspapers were saying police needed to find who did it if they were to continue to be respected, while Mary's funeral included cries for justice. After a brief period of considering that maybe Leo Frank and Newt Lee, the night watchman, had committed the crime together, investigators realized Newt Lee wasn't involved and began to look at Leo Frank working alone. Although, as Steve Oney said in his book, And the Dead Shall Rise, no single development was responsible for the determination that Leo Frank was guilty. The prosecution, led by Hugh M. Dorsey, eventually centered its case on Jim Conley, a black man and a janitor at the pencil factory. His reputation was not a good one. He was a known drinker with a criminal record. Initially, Jim was brought in because he was spotted washing what looked like a bloody shirt, and he said it was rust. Although Jim initially said that he had nothing to do with the murder or the notes, he claimed he couldn't write. That later changed. Investigators learned that he could actually write. 
Then they subjected him to extremely hard interrogations, including warnings and threats, and long periods of purposely uncomfortable isolation. On the day that Leo Frank was indicted, Jim told authorities that he wrote the murder notes. Jim Conley eventually released multiple affidavits, each one changing, contradicting, or adding to the last, and preceded by more intense interrogations. One affidavit even caused some to wonder if Jim Conley had killed Mary in an attempt to rob her of her wages. Ultimately, though, Jim's assertion was that Leo Frank murdered Mary on the floor where his office was and offered him money to move her to the basement and write the so-called murder notes. The reason Jim gave for why it took multiple statements for him to get what was now being proclaimed to be the truth out was, quote, the thing got to working in my head so much that I just couldn't hold it any longer. For many, this was proof that the interrogations had gotten Jim Conley to finally give that truth up. But for those on the pro-Frank side, they believed it was a result of coercion and manipulation. The intensity of the interrogations wasn't limited to Jim Conley. It can also be seen in the treatment of Minola McKnight, the Frank's black cook. After time behind closed doors where Minola was heard screaming, she gave a statement that claimed Leo Frank came home for lunch, but that he'd run back out 10 minutes later, which was much shorter than what Leo himself had said. She also said that Leo had told Lucille he was in trouble and that he wanted to kill himself. Minola's statement was put in the papers almost as soon as she was released from custody. But also in the papers soon after her statement was published, was her complete disavowal of what it contained. She called it, quote, most all a pack of lies. And when asked by a reporter why she'd be okay with that being attached to her name, she said, quote, I ain't got no lawyer except God. He's my lawyer. You just put that in the paper. This caused Lucille Frank to publish an open letter in multiple papers. In part, she wrote, quote, I suppose the witnesses tortured will be confined to the class who are not able to employ lawyers to relieve them from the torture in time to prevent their being forced to give false affidavits, but the lives sworn away may come from any class. It is not surprising that my cook should sign an affidavit to relieve herself from torture that has been applied to her for four hours. It would be surprising if she would not, under such circumstances, give an affidavit. Clearly, the unofficial trial in the press began well before the formal one. The local press were publishing about the case constantly, even before things were verified. At one point, headlines declared Newt Lee guilty. At others, Leo Frank and Jim Conley were declared innocent. Some questioned why the investigation seemed to be such a mess. Then, there was also the gossip train which was speculating about everything from the extent of the brutalization to Mary's body to Leo Frank's possible perverseness and marriage issues. As for what actually caused Mary's death, although there had been an examination of Mary's body early on, the proper autopsy didn't take place until over a week after her death when she had already been buried. And in the end, her body had to be disinterred twice for medical examinations. Henry Harris and J.W. Hurt, two medical professionals who took part in them, agreed that she died from strangulation. However, they disagreed on one important topic, whether or not Mary had been raped. Although it would become widely accepted that Mary was sexually assaulted, 
and it's unfortunately completely possible. As with much else in this case, there was not an airtight consensus from those involved in the investigations. The community turned out in droves for the trial, surrounding the courthouse and hoping for a guilty verdict. The trial lasted about three weeks, with a seemingly endless array of witnesses. The prosecution called witnesses who helped build an image of Leo as someone who was always inappropriate with his young workers, who had affairs with women and possibly with men, and was the sort of person who would commit this crime. As expected, the prosecution used Jim as the key witness accusing Leo Frank of murder. Jim expanded upon his previous statements by explicitly telling the court that he had a history of watching out for Leo when he had women in his office, and further, that Leo had admitted to him that he killed Mary when she resisted his sexual advances. The defense, in turn, obviously worked to establish there was no way Leo Frank would do something like this because he was actually of great character, and certainly they called Lemmy Quinn to the stand to reiterate the visit during the likely murder window. However, they failed to discredit Jim Conley. Eventually, Leo Frank spoke. He explained his background and gave his account of what happened the day of the murder before explaining that he was, quote, unstrung by the shock of the news, and that he'd refused to talk with Jim Conley when it was previously offered because he was afraid anything he said would have been twisted. He concluded by swearing that Jim's accusations were lies, he was innocent, and that he'd purposely kept quiet until the right time, which was now at his trial. When Leo's lawyers spoke, they were aware that they botched getting Jim Conley to break on the stand and went after his character. It was true that he had a checkered past, but Luther Rosser openly went the route of hoping racism would sway things his way. He described Jim with the N-word, also calling him, quote, plain, drunken, filthy, and a liar, while talking about how he probably snorted vast amounts of cocaine. He even addressed the jury, saying, quote, if you, as white men, should believe Jim Conley, it will be the shame on this great city and on this great state, and will be until the end of time. The prosecution used racism in a different way. Co-counselor Frank Hooper called Jim Conley an ignorant black man who could not be broken by the defense because he was telling the truth. Although Dorsey denied any prejudice, still, he made comments that blatantly drew attention to Leo being Jewish. His list of famous figures who had fallen from grace contained many Jewish examples. To emphasize the perversion accusations, he used a comparison to, quote, confessed pervert Oscar Wilde, referring to Wilde's known and prosecuted homosexual relationships. When it came time for the verdict, it was agreed that Leo Frank would not be present for fear that violence would break out when it was read. It took the 12-man jury only a few hours to return with their verdict, guilty. As soon as word reached outside, the throngs broke out into celebration. When Leo Frank was told of the results, he allegedly exclaimed, even the jury was influenced by mob law, before later releasing a very simple statement, I am as innocent today as I was one year ago. The verdict led to a sentence of death by hanging which set off reactions and debates from all around the country. Most of the country's major newspapers were at least implicitly supportive of Leo Frank. Importantly, though, different papers covered it in different ways. Most black newspapers, for example, wanted the truth to prevail, 
but were incredibly upset over the blatant racism abounding in those blaming Jim Conley for the murder. They also spoke out against the fact that black people were hurt or lynched regularly and received none of the attention and attempts at aid that were being given to Leo Frank. Jewish presses, meanwhile, focused on the anti-Semitism that showed up in the case. Meanwhile, Leo's legal team sent multiple appeals to the courts, but failed to make headway. Those on his side, his lawyers, family, and outside supporters moved by the situation, tried everything they could do to have his fate changed. The one that took the most root was a plea to George's governor, John M. Slayton, to consider the case and prevent his execution. Governor Slayton knew he was tapping a powder keg by agreeing to consider it. He wasn't wrong. It caused him and his family to receive promises that he would be killed if he acted in Leo's favor. He conducted an in-depth investigation of his own. Then prior to announcing his decision, he had Leo move to safety outside of Atlanta just in case people rioted. Then he revealed that he was commuting Leo's sentence from death by hanging to life imprisonment. It was not freedom, but it was a reprieve which Leo and his supporters were most thankful for. However, it also sparked immediate, intense outrage from those who were anti-Leo Frank, like Tom Watson. Tom Watson was known to many Georgians. He had a long career in law and politics. He even ran for president. And over time, he became openly anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, and a white supremacist. He used his publication, The Jeffersonian, as a mouthpiece, which he filled with articles calling Leo Frank everything that you can imagine. So, of course, he'd been vehemently against the consideration of commutation. He promised bloody riots, encouraged protests, and accused big money, his words, of causing the, quote, well-weighted findings of unimpeachable jurors to be taken away. Watson purposely did as much as he could to rile up those who listened to him, and he definitely succeeded and grew in popularity as he did. This commutation caused a group of Marietta locals to dub themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan and vow vengeance, committing to take matters into their own hands since the governor was refusing to fulfill the original death sentence. Now, following the commutation, Leo was moved to Milledgeville Prison Farm, where he survived, barely, a murder attempt committed by a fellow inmate who attacked his throat with a knife. Then, on the night of August 16, 1915, a group of 25 men arrived at the prison where, courtesy of pre-planning, they were able to get in and kidnap Leo. They took him in his nightshirt to a place very close to where Mary Fagan once lived. There, in the early hours of August 17th, Leo Frank was lynched. Unfortunately, the only versions we have of what occurred in the lead up to Leo's death comes from the people who did the lynching something which was pointed out even by a reporter at the time. But one thing that seems to be true is that Leo requested his wedding ring be given to his wife, because we know that the ring was given to a reporter who then returned it to Lucille. If you decide to Google Leo Frank, please know photographs of the lynching come up very quickly. I can promise that you won't find those pictures on our site, but you will find them in some of the sources I used, which are on the further reading list. So just be prepared. Following Leo Frank's death, nothing happened to the people involved in the lynching. It wasn't that it was impossible to find those responsible, but that they were protected. 
After all, a significant portion of the local population vocally supported what they considered to be the people serving justice the government would not. People went so far as to gather en masse at the lynching site to gawk, celebrate, and photograph what had occurred. On the other side, those who had believed Leo innocent were disgusted and outraged, but Leo was already gone and no one was held responsible. Leo's body was returned to New York and interred at Mount Carmel Cemetery in Queens. Widowed Lucille was devastated, never remarried, and passed away in 1957. She and Leo had not had any children. Governor John M. Slayton's political career was ended by his role in the case. He died in 1955, but shortly before that, he explained that had he not commuted the sentence, quote, I should have been haunted for the remainder of my life with the conviction that I committed a murder. Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, became governor of Georgia, then later returned to practicing law and ended his career as a judge in Atlanta. He passed away in 1948. Meanwhile, Tom Watson had died in 1922, but not before he made it into the U.S. Senate. Early Watson biographer C. Van Woodward wrote that at Watson's funeral, quote, most conspicuous among the floral tributes was a cross of red roses eight feet high sent by the Ku Klux Klan. Over the last century, there have been many people, historians, journalists, and otherwise, who have argued that the real murderer of Mary Fagan was more likely to be Jim Conley than Leo Frank. One person from the era who believed this was Jim's lawyer, William Smith. In 1914, when Leo Frank was still alive, he revealed that he'd realized his client was guilty and Leo Frank was innocent. William did not come to this lightly. He'd considered the police's mishandling of the crime scene, conducted his own investigation, and, as part of it, came to believe that the notes were too much in Jim Conley's voice to have been dictated by Leo Frank. As you probably guessed, whether or not someone was excited about this news depended on their stance regarding the trial's outcome. Ultimately, nothing came of William Smith's attempts to get the case reconsidered, but he maintained his new belief even on his deathbed. As for Jim Conley, he had received a sentence of one year for his role as an accomplice. He eventually faded from public record, so unfortunately, his fate remains unclear. Similarly likely to continue to be unknown is what definitively happened the day that Mary Fagan died. Although the case continues to be studied, and everyone who studies it develops a strong opinion about it, given the tensions and high emotions surrounding it even now, we will likely never have a conclusion that causes everyone to have the same opinion of who committed the horrible murder. The case was a catalyst for the creation of the Anti-Defamation League, which was formed to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. But also, shortly after Leo's death, the Ku Klux Klan was officially revived in Georgia, and it has been speculated that some of those involved in the lynching participated. In 1986, the case made headlines again because Leo Frank received a posthumous pardon from the state of Georgia, which was not an exoneration, but, quote, an act of official forgiveness. It explicitly said it was not addressing the question of guilt or innocence. Instead, it was based on that officials not only failed to prevent Leo from being killed, but also failed to bring charges against those involved in the lynching. In 2019, the case was in the press yet again, this time because it was announced that it would be reopened by the Fulton County Conviction Integrity Unit in Georgia, though as of my recording this, nothing has been released to my knowledge. 
This news was met with great joy by some, like former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes, who had been interested in the case for many years, but was harshly decried by Mary Fagan's living family members. These reactions illustrate that the case remains as controversial and emotionally charged as ever. The Mary Fagan murder and Leo Frank trial and lynching were of interest to creators almost from the moment news of the crime went public. I mentioned the musical Parade earlier, and I would argue it's the most enduring dramatization. The title, by the way, which my wonderful co-producer Kristen asked me about, is a reference to a Confederate Memorial Day parade featured in the show. Parade features a book by Alfred Urey of Driving Miss Daisy fame and a score by Jason Robert Brown, who later wrote The Last Five Years. The catalyst for it was that Alfred Urey had personal ties to the case. He had a great uncle who was an owner of the National Pencil Company, and his grandmother had known Leo and Lucille Frank socially. The musical first opened on Broadway in 1998 with Brent Carver as Leo and Carolee Carmelo as Lucille. Then, just this year, it returned to Broadway with Ben Platt as Leo and Michaela Diamond as Lucille. Both productions won Tonys. I could do an entire episode just analyzing the score, but I'll just quickly point out a few interesting tracks. How Can I Call This Home establishes Leo as a northern Jewish outsider in Atlanta. That's what he said depicts Jim Conley giving his testimony. A rumblin' and a rollin' shows black Atlantan domestic workers bringing attention to the fact that northern white people were getting so invested in preventing Leo from hanging, but had never even blinked an eye when a black girl got murdered or a black man was lynched. And finally, This Is Not Over Yet, shows Leo and Lucille experience extreme hope because Governor Slayton has decided to consider the case. I've put clips on footnotinghistory.com. It is important, of course, to remember that no dramatization is going to have complete accuracy. But Parade is a fascinating piece. Knowing of Erie's personal ties to the Frank family is a great starting point for a discussion about who tells a story, why they tell it how they do, and how research of the case compares to the choices made on stage. Thank you for spending time with me today. If you'd like more information about footnoting history, and this topic in particular, Don't forget to visit footnotinghistory.com for those resources. My eternal thanks goes out to our patrons and Kofi supporters for helping keep us running. I hope you'll all come back to listen when our next episode comes out. And until then, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.